bit of housekeeping before we start the podcast. This is the Sunday special. Before we uh, decamp to the wonderful city of Derry uh, to talk to people involved in the Bloody Sunday campaign, members of the families who who remember their their loved ones and some fairly high profile people who you've probably heard of uh, we will not be making a show next sunday uh, well i say that there will be a show coming out for our patron supporters because we'll be recording as i said throughout the week and we'll try and put that together to come out uh, to fill that slot for you guys at 12 o'clock next sunday um, I want to thank you for your support. It's been a crazy start to the year. The numbers are phenomenal. If you aren't a subscriber, what you've missed out on in the last few days alone um, is the myself and Mick O'Toole having a conversation around how things get reported, um, how they need to be reported once they become the uh, once they're subdued, say, and and under the under the, the control of a judge. The problems with that that means for people who are tweeting things and. Great conversation with John Schwartz from The Intercept as well. There is a Rory has a podcast with Katu. And as I said previously, Police is back. Uh, there is a excellent podcast out right now, Vicky on disruptive lawyers. And, and I mean disruptive in the positive sense. And there's another police coming tomorrow. Uh, so if you're not a patron, you're missing out on all that content, plus hundreds of other exclusives. They're all available now for the, I think it's about five fifty a month. It's it's cheaper than a pint these days, unfortunately. And it's all at patreon.com forward slash tortoise We'd appreciate you tipping in. I know this you get it for free. Uh you get it delayed for free, but you get it for free nonetheless. It's but it keeps us going. We rely on people. It's it's really a way of, of saying no ads, no sponsors. Plus, you get one RSS feed, one podcast feed for your troubles, which means all of the podcasts that we do, whether it's Glow West, Police, Echo, Reboot, they're all in one feed. You don't have to worry about it and you get them as they're recorded. You don't have to wait. Thanks for the support. Talk to you all soon. Enjoy what I think is a pretty good Sunday special. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Tortoise Shack Sunday special. Uh, this is our quick rundown of the week. Some of the stories that are under the radar, some of the stories that made the news and maybe um, Martin's uh, giving out about the versions of them that he doesn't doesn't agree with. We have um, an excellent panel lined up. We're, uh, belatedly, we're joined by DJ Walsh. Of, uh, I'm going to plug his podcast, folks, Snugcast, right? So he won't, won't he wasn't expecting to do that. But basically, it's it's him sampling the best IPAs and beers around and, and uh, having a bit of crack with with a pal. But um, but DJ, you're also for the purpose of this conversation, you're you're uh, you're a pharmacist, the, the pharmacist in in, in UHW and. And um, you're uh, you're you're also uh, how do I put this, DJ? I'm going to come back to this. You're you're also been very outspoken about about how things. And we will come back to that in time. We're joined by regular uh, contributor Emma D'Souza, who folks you'll know. She's the advocate of the Good Friday Agreement. She's also uh, she writes really well in the Irish Times, and she's uh, she's a, a great voice. And we really. Delighted to have her again, but uh, we're going to go first to um, regular listeners will remember he's been on several times, uh, Mister. Um, I, I, I look read the books. I've I've only I've only started the third book, Tony, but I believe you, you're the, the the third book. Uh, the first book is getting a launch in Italy next week. Um, Tony Doherty, if you're not familiar, is is uh, he's a historian, whether he believes it or not. He's he's one of the the men behind the Free Dairy Museum, and he's also. One of the people whose fa- his father was was murdered on Bloody Sunday, and this week coming is the 50th anniversary, and there's a lot of events going on, um, Tony. So appreciate you stepping out and giving us a few minutes to tell us about this week and uh, some of the things that are happening. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Um, yeah, the next Sunday uh, it will be exactly 50 years uh, since the. The, the massacre of Bloody Sunday, which happened on, on the 30th of January 1972. And next Sunday is also the 30th of January. So there's a there's an exact match in, in terms of the, the day, time and date. Um, and, you know, it, it, it can be a difficult time for families as well. I mean, these things can't be t- taken uh, lightly um, just as a series of events. The, the memories that, that people have and hold uh, of that day and the loss that they incurred are still very, very uh, vivid and difficult 
to uh, deal with. So the, the, the time doesn't really deal. You know, time in, in, in a sense does heal. And in our sense, stuff is always there to be dealt with. But anyway, I uh, I am also chair of the Bloody Sunday Trust uh, and the Museum of Free Dairy, as you, as you say, which is a, a like a conjoined um, organisation. And it's a great privilege of, of, of mine and great pleasure uh, to, to be as chair. Uh, and we have a series of events planned for the the 50th anniversary uh, right across the uh, the, the week. Um, and, and in particular, sort of working back from the, the, the Sunday, I suppose, which most people will be interested in um, if they're coming to Derry, uh, we are, are organising a family's walk of remembrance in the morning at quarter past nine uh, so it's a cock crow sort of event, uh, quarter past nine at the Craig and Shops, and we're asking people to come along with us, uh, walk the, the 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 steps that our loved ones took in, in the in the minutes and hours before they were uh, they were murdered, and we will proceed to the Bloody Sunday Monument uh, in in Roswell Street where the the, the massacre actually took place, um, and it's not we're not asking for bands or banners or flags or emblems or any of that it's we see it very much as a a family's walk of of remembrance and and trying to sort of maintain the dignity and, and the poignancy of our um of our struggle of our campaign and of our existence um later on in the afternoon then we will be hosting an, an, an event in the Guildhall square which is ticketed uh because of Mostly now because of health and safety, and less so because of COVID, but it's still ticketed because the, the there is a restriction on numbers, and the, uh, the 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 tickets can be can be got on Eventbrite. If you go on to our site, which is bloodysunday50.com, you'll get your instructions and updated um, access to uh, to all those events. Um, on the Saturday evening, we have our own uh, or your own Damien Dempsey performing in the in the Millennium Theatre. Uh, Damien is a great friend of the mm. people of Derry and of the Bloody Sunday Trust. And he, he's, he's, he's um, performed on a number of occasions. And he's actually spoken uh, about his life and motivation uh, as well in the Museum of, of Free Derry uh, not so long ago. And that, that was a very, very moving event, actually, because he, he talks about his friends. He talks about suicide. He talks about national freedom. He talks about everything that that's... It's uh, important to him, and uh, and then on the Saturday afternoon, we have no less a figure than uh, than the bold Jeremy Corbyn, mm. who is delivering the um, the fiftieth annual lecture, the annual Bloody Sunday lecture, uh, in the Guildhall. And again, that that's a ticketed uh, event uh, because of the remnants of COVID and because of health and safety. Uh, but it's it's been screened live. Actually, all of our events are are being screened life um so th- those are the th- those are the main events on the on the saturday and sunday but if you go onto the the bloody sunday50.com you'll you'll see the full range of events oh, we'll, 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 we'll add that link to, to the to the pod um yeah. so if anybody wants to see but i also i think you, what you said was really poignant and i saw even emma nodding when you were saying this isn't you know people this is a, a walk of remembrance for families i mean i I was speaking to uh, uh, Mick O'Toole the other day from the the crime correspondent of the Irish Daily, and he was he was only eighteen months old when it happened, and he was living in North Belfast, and yet it became, as he put it, part of the framework and infrastructure of his entire life. This 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 particular, you know, criticizing every atrocity naturally enough, but saying this particular one. You know, he remembers every time he saw the priest, every time he saw the, you know, every 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 single time. Um, you lost your father when you were quite a young child, Tony. Um, this is now 50 years on. It was a difficult year, last 12 months. It was a difficult thing for the families when the British government pretty much said that justice was going to be deferred in, in many ways. But the, the, the eyes of the world will be on Derry next week. And, you know, that, that, has, to, that has to count for something. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's also fair to say, uh, Tony, that, that over the years, much has been achieved by by the families, and and it's been achieved uh, primarily because of family unity, which is a fantastic thing. And any 
anybody who's ever part of, of a of a grouping of uh, a large grouping of families that are campaigning can be very difficult, very emotional um, stuff that you, you're engaging in. So it's it's and it can be difficult to to maintain inward unity and outward unity uh, at, at the same time. But we managed to do it uh, over over the the course of of the the decades, particularly since. 1992, when the families organised ourselves uh, fittingly into a, into a fighting force, and uh, we, I suppose, we we had a struggle to establish our own bona fides at the time, uh, and and part of that actually was was being refused entry by the Taoiseach, uh, who was Charles J. Hawley at the time. Uh, the Uachtaran, the Heron, uh, Mary Robinson, and no less a figure than the the um, Cardinal Daly, uh, who was at the. I, I don't really remember his formal title, but he was he was basically officer commanding the Catholic Church in, in, in Ireland at the at, at the time, and they they all refused us at, at the beginning, and uh, I remember uh, as 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 part of our. Establishing our bona fides, we we felt that we needed to make the president uh, Mary Robinson uh, aware of our annoyance, and so we actually held a picket or protest or call it what you will in the Phoenix Park just beside Arson Oakton, and uh, we were given an armed escort out of the Phoenix Park by the guards, and we had an armed escort right up. To the border at Monaghan, so those are the type of thing. Those are the times that we were were living in. Actually, ironically, and and, and somewhat perversely, uh, a number of years later, we were actually given an arm. We were given an unarmed Garda escort into Dublin to meet all of the uh, heads of the political parties. Uh, at that time, once we had, so there was a bit. There's a whole sort of dichotomy going on there. You know, of the the way we were criminalised during the during the conflict. And then afterwards, you know, we, we were very, very clear by saying that these issues need to be examined, explored and and reinvestigated if, if, if necessary, if true peace and justice is, is, is going to prevail. And in, in fairness, I suppose, uh, and, and somewhat belatedly at times, uh, many of the party, the party leaders did listen and, and uh, weigh in behind us. Uh, so that's that's a good thing. But the reality of actually growing up here during the troubles, right up to the the ceasefire, was was one of imposed sort of criminality, and the view from the south, as has been spoken of uh, quite recently, many times, uh, was that you you're basically blamed for your own uh, your own misfortune, and that that's the way we felt actually. Yeah, so it was difficult Tony, to get the, the issue of truth well, and justice on. on, well, on the table, Tony, we 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 still have that being said today. We've seen the discussions, and I know Emma, you've commented on this several times about the. The level of discourse when you engage with, um, I'm going to say, southern media as well can be quite um, disappointing. When you know it's 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 green or orange or it's uh, simplified and there's no nuance in it. Um, Tony, look, I really appreciate you. To, I, I do want to 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 move on because it's interesting you say that in the context of of um, how events are. And, and Emma, I want to ask you one one straight question. There's an election due in May. Sinn Fein are up again this morning. Bre- just a little bit in the polls. Uh, the DUP are down slightly. There's talks of how they're going to do their double jobbing. They're going to get all of these things. It's um, it's a political and democratic, I'm going to use the phrase, shit show. Um, what, 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 you know, in the context of, of what we've just heard there, are, are we going to see, is it still a bottleneck or is there any hope that, you know, things could change in May? <clears throat> Well, you'll know now that I'm an eternal optimist. So I'm holding out hope that there is going to be big changes in the election um, in May and that uh, we're going to see hopefully an increase in those coming out to vote. And that's, I think, going to be a big part of my own work over the next coming weeks and months is really trying to encourage people to reflect on the meaning of having that right to vote and how important it is. Because I think in Northern Ireland, we can become really disillusioned, really disenfranchised from the political systems. It's so divisive. This campaign will again be a sectarian headcount. But that in itself is a way to disincentivize voters who could uh, bring meaningful change from going out on the day. So we have to really combat combat that over the coming months because in a way it's voter suppression. 
um, and that it just makes people switch off and not want to engage in the political systems and the uh, the process of voting. So there's a big push to try and do that. And I think if we look at the polls, if we look at the Lucid Talk poll that just came out over the weekend, we see Sinn Féin has really maintained their position over the last number of years now, really, north and south, in terms of sustaining their their vote share. Um, and we see the DUP continuing to drop down again. This will be quite devastating, I think, for Jeffrey Donaldson, whose leadership is, is ranked the lowest um, of any political party in Northern Ireland. And we see that the uh, the third spot is really strongly looking at uh, UUP and Alliance. Now, this could all change on the day. We see the TUV is sitting on 12%. And, you know, considering that's really just Jim Allister, it's highly unlikely that there's going to be uh, that actual... To 12% yeah, vote that, share that, on the day. that 12% won't actually account to number of seats. It, it's, yeah, so it's, it's likely to, that some of those voters might go towards the DUP. But what was also interesting in that piece of work that was done by Lucid Talk was the amount of unionists that supported the collapsing of Stormont was 63%. And there was a lot made of that in the media yesterday. And once again, um, my own commentary around it was to remember that you know, unionism is not a majority in Northern Ireland anymore. Uh, it does not reflect the majority view in Northern Ireland. And that, you know, 60 <clears throat> percent of uh, unionists supporting the collapsing of Stormont is not reflective of the majority position or view of the people of Northern Ireland, really accounts for about 29 percent of, of the electorate. It is still concerning that so many of them would back collapsing Stormont, considering how much legislation needs to get through, considering that we're still in a pandemic. There are so many different issues that need to be addressed through having the institutions up and running. And I think it really points to how successful a lot of the inflamed rhetoric and misinformation around the Northern Ireland Protocol has been over the past year. And that, you know, this narrative that came out from the DUP and the TUV, that somehow the constitutional position of Northern Ireland is impacted by the Northern Ireland Protocol, has created confusion within the electorate, and they're sort of buying into that logic. And this, the, the question of double jobbing came up as well this week as well, Emma. Um, now, in, in reality, we'll be honest about it. It's not really double jobbing. It's triple and quadruple jobbing. Um, they're already doing two jobs. As you said, inflaming the rhetoric is one of them. Um, what do you think the, the impact of that is going to be on the DUP? Well, I think that, um, you know, I saw Sam McBride was mentioning this morning that he heard from the NIO last year that they were going to do something to assist the DUP. Uh, because, of course, Jeffrey Donaldson, uh, if he runs for the Stormont election, he will then have to give up his Westminster seat. And it's uh, highly likely that the DUP will lose their uh, lagging seat in that by-election. Alliance looks very strong for taking it uh, from the DUP if that happens. So obviously the DUP don't want that to happen. And the double jobbing was a way to facilitate Jeffrey Donaldson being able to retain his Westminster seat and still go for it in Stormont. And when it came out in a sort of last minute um, announcement uh, earlier this week, it was being pushed by the NIO and by Brandon Lewis, especially that, you know, this was uh, had cross party support in the House of Lords and it wasn't all about the DUP, but everyone saw through that immediately. And all the parties in Northern Ireland bar the DUP um, actually wrote then a letter to Boris Johnson stating that there was no support for this. You have to remember double jobbing was removed in 2014 because there's no support for it by the public. And like, realistically, you just can't do both jobs. You can't be in Westminster for an important vote and be in Stormont for an important vote at the same time. So thankfully, there was a, an announcement that double jobbing is not going to happen. It was supposed to be a temporary measure that they were bringing in, but it was quite clearly a temporary measure that was being brought in to facilitate the DUP. And Jeffrey Donaldson came out earlier in the week. He said he was going to run uh, in that case and do the, you know, the two jobs if possible, as were a number of other DUP uh, MPs. And, you know, so it's quite clear that they were fully behind it. Schrodinger's representatives. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, one thing I did want to ask, Emma, sorry, Tony, was yeah. about, about this report on collusion that has come out, Emma. For a very long time down south here, we have completely ignored um, that there was collusion. And I mean, really in-depth and, and really far-reaching collusion. The report came out. It has been all over Northern Ireland newspapers. We've seen a tiny smattering of it this weekend in the south. Can you Have you any concept of why it's so ignored down here. Absolutely I didn't even ignored. see that tiny bit, to be fair. I was actually thinking about how, uh, you know, that report really just wasn't uh, discussed across the border. And, you know, I can't recall if the Taoiseach made any comments or if Simon Coveney did or if um, 
the justice minister did. Uh, I mean, there really was just a complete disconnect in terms of how they responded to that report. And it was a really significant report. It shows a number of police failings. It shows collusion. And the fact that we see that not being reported across the border just once again highlights that there really is a disconnect north and south, that there is this continuance of thinking of the north as, as an other and really having, I suppose, um, quite a you know, an abstract notion of what happened here over the last 100 years. I mean, I'm thinking also about, uh, I can't remember who it was now, it was a, a Charlie Flanagan, I think, maybe last mm, weekend, was yeah. talking about how, you know, January 16th should be Ireland's Independence Day. And it's just like, between, you know, um, the British government and unionists wanting to, you know, celebrate Northern Ireland and partition, and Charlie Flanagan and others wanting to celebrate Ireland's independence, the 26 counties, Irish citizens in the north and their lived experiences really have been completely lost over this decade. Emma, decade. we apologise no, for him. We we too. No, no, hang on. You're 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 mentioning Charlie. The Tanishta said, you know, on this day, the Irish state, blah blah blah, as well. And you're like, oh well, you know, are we are we forgetting about this? And I mean, Tony, I put that to you in the context of a the question on collusion um, and not being covered, uh, and then uh, you know, because obviously. You're you you've you've still been denied. Your families have been denied justice in 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 a large sense. We see recently, only recently, the Miami show band in a settlement for you know with Stephen Travers, you know um, Eugene Reeve. You'll probably meet you know later on in the week when when we're heading up north and with the damage that was done to his family. A lot of people who I talk to, they don't have to their eternal credit hate in their hearts, but they would like truth, reconciliation, and 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 honesty. But there's you're not going to get that, particularly not, as Colin Harvey put it yesterday, unless the conversation is happening in Dublin as well. It needs the pressure needs to come from Dublin as well. Yeah, I agree up, accepting that that uh, that collusion existed right across the board uh, between loyalist organisations and the British Army and the intelligence services. Uh, so I, I've always accepted that. Now, in saying that, before the uh, the outbreak of peace, there were there was scant evidence to to support that, and the reality is that had any academics been probing or exploring or investigating the the possibility of collusion or how how collusion sort of manifested itself between the various organisations, they probably would have found themselves in in, in uh, hot water, and and their lives would have been in danger. So that that's why a lot of uh, a lot of that investigative reporting or academic investigation doesn't really take place until the last 20, 25 years uh, or so, but it's always existed. The, the UDA, um, right through, I mean, the UDA was basically established by the the uh, by the British government and, and then was sustained right through the conflict uh, and right through to the present day. The UDA is still a legal organisation. So the, the, the organization that crossed the border in 1991 to kill Sinn Féin, uh, Councillor Eddie Fullerton, uh, was a legal organization. So if you had been arrested, and you, you wouldn't have been accused of being a member of the UDA because it, it wasn't a criminal offense. So even, even that act is, is an act of sort of open collusion, if you want. It, it sort of makes it okay for you to, uh, for, for you, large num numbers of people to be involved in, in that organization. And the other uh, issue which is really pertinent to this is, is the importation of arms. I mean, the, the, the importation of arms happened uh, through the active collusion of, of, a, of a number of uh, well-placed collaborators within both the UVF and the UDA and the British government in, uh, in 1986 and 1987 and, and onwards, and, and most famously uh, in relation to the, the importation of arms from the South African state. So all, I mean, it's, it's, it's no great surprise. It's, it's been that, there a very you know, long time. Exactly. Time. You see that the, the supporters of, of apartheid in South Africa before the downfall of that regime exporting arms to a, uh, a similar type regime with the, the, the same type of polit politics and, and social political uh, analysis or, or, or lack of. Uh, Tony, 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 you're going to get in trouble now because I mean, Joe Broly got in trouble for pointing out the the the, the connections to some of the mindsets relative to say s certain aspects of 
the deep south in, in America as well, you know. So we can't we can't we can't be pointing out things that actually uh, show they were discriminatory. We we but but I look I I do I am conscious we do need to move on, but I do think. It, it is it is actually terrible and really emma you're right i didn't see the smattering that martin referred to i i saw a couple of comments about it and i saw one historian who seems to be the only historian they get rolled out for anything and been asked for comments yeah. and you know he could be asked about what happened in cork he could be asked about what's happened on in jupiter and we have one we seem to only have the one spokesperson in in mainstream irish media and it's kind of embarrassing at this stage tony do you before we move on do you want to make a, a final point on that sorry the, the, the collusion that existed at, at various levels. I mean, do you see now where there there has been a realistic prosecution, a, a prospect of prosecution of, of certain soldiers and uh, members of the RUC and so on related to uh, killings or murders that took place in the 70s and 80s and so on? What we've actually found out is that the, the police force, the RUC and the British Army colluded not to gather the evidence not to seek out the evidence relating to uh, deaths of individuals, deaths of large groups of, of, of people that, that met their death through the, the, uh, the activities of the, the British Army and, and, that, uh, and the same police force. So now when the cases are coming through the court, like the, the, the murder of Joe McCann in, uh, in, in the market area of Belfast in 1971, I think, the case basically collapsed because there was no evidence gathered at the time. And after Bloody Sunday, when 13 people had been murdered and 13 had been seriously injured within the space of uh, 20 minutes, within the space of 200 square yards, there was no criminal investigation. So there was no forensics, if there were forensics at the time, there was nobody calling the our door to find out who my father was, what he looked like, what he was doing at the march, and all that. There was none of that. There was never any criminal investigations when the state was involved directly in, in murders. And the investigations uh, that, that took place in relation to people who were killed by the UDA and UVF were invariably poor, uh, lackluster, half-hearted. And when you actually open, when you physically open the file at times, of someone who was killed in 1973 by the British Army, the file is basically empty because there is no no evidence was was uh, collated at the time, and that has a knock-on effect to the present day, where there has been a realistic prospect of, of soldiers like Soldier F, for instance, uh, facing a, a, a murder trial. When it comes down to it, there is no evidence. There has been no evidence collated. I, and that's I, a damning indictment of the of the judicial. Uh, processes and, and well, systems. Well, I, I, did, I did see the mural about uh, British justice um, posted online, but I will. I, we need to. We need to move on. But I do want to make one point actually. And again, this is this is kind of plugging the book as well, Tony. The first book, uh, you got more information about what happened to your father at a game of marbles than uh, than 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 actually you know is in the report about what actually happened to your father in the investigation. And I'm sorry to be so blase about it but that was the that's how it was outlined and i, I and i don't mean to to you know i don't mean to bring it up I, it's obviously it's obviously still going to be painful for you but in that in that context yeah it's it, i i can't get my head around it so i don't know how you do even even 50 years later um well as, as i said earlier it's it's uh even after the fullness of of, of time it's it's still there and and some of us some people deal with it. It appears better than ours. Um, I, I sort of hold my memories of that day in a in a in a box, basically, and in, in my head, and I don't open it very often. Um, yeah, we, we, and many people like me are they are, are the same uh, as well. Um, and that that's just the way I, I have. That's a coping mechanism for me, knowing that it's there, but I don't. I think when I go there every I day, uh, all, that that helps me just get on with life on an everyday basis. I think all of us think, Tony, we only have the one dad, better or worse, only one dad, and we all remember your dad on this. You know, we remember that's what that's what this week is about. And it's about those who lost their lives, and it's remembering those who lost their lives. So, 
look from all of us as well we hope you have good memories here that on and we do we seriously yeah, do hope I you have actually good I, I, I do one of the one of my motivations when I started writing was to get to know my father again actually because I, I was I was nine I'm the, the grand old age of 59 now uh Tony uh and so I, I didn't really have the time to know my father as a you know with me, me being a teenager or growing up and an adult so it stopped suddenly uh when I had just turned nine years of age so I one of my motivations was to sort of get to know him again rediscover him um excavate the 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 memories and the the, the events that I, that I had in my head so that I could sort of I suppose create a, a as full a picture as I, as I possibly could uh, and it's there that the, the book this man's wee boy is there now uh forever in a day and i think it's yeah it's, no it's no a I, great I, thing that i've done and it's it's coming out it's coming out in italy on on monday on monday yeah. week, i believe so hey, listen we better we have to move on but thanks so much for this i this sounds really awful but i want to go to dj watch because you've sat there quietly now for half an hour ireland is reopening dj you're a healthcare professional but uh, you're also someone who has spoken openly about your own um uh <clears throat> immuno situation and how and how that happens there's, I put it the other day on the podcast, and I know you were kind of having a laugh about it. I think you made a comment about one of our short, me and Martin, having a rant at each other podcast. But I said, it's okay to be anxious. It's okay to be over, you know, to be overjoyed. And it's okay to not know how you feel. How are you, uh, given the, the different stools you have to sit on, how do you feel about it all? Yeah, a bit, a bit of a tree, Tony, to be honest. Uh, just before I answer that, <clears throat> I just want to wish Tony, uh, Darty, and and. Um, everyone else up in Derry best of luck for next weekend uh, uh, I hope you have a, a, a great day remembering your loved ones um, I suppose Tony yeah to, to talk, it's it's a good phrase to use the, different, use the different stools I sit on because I suppose I have a lot of friends I have a couple of friends who are small business owners who run local family run in the pubs who I'm really looking forward to sitting on a, a high stool and chatting to them about the, the tough couple of years they've had so I'm, I'm excited for that uh, the immunocompromised part of me is a bit, it's a bit anxious um, about uh, about the measures being drawn back. And then the healthcare professional in me, caring for people with cancer, has some significant reservations, primarily because, in my experience throughout this pandemic, the biggest barrier to people receiving cancer treatment, receiving cancer diagnoses, biopsies, uh, receiving clinic the uh, appointments and in-person clinic appointments that are really important, especially, um, you know, talking to the oncologist and hematologist I work with, you know, uh, delivering bad news about cancer relapsing or a new cancer diagnosis in person is is really important versus virtual. Um, and the biggest barrier to those things happening was not, in fact, the restrictions or the level of restrictions or, or public health measures. It wasn't... Um, well, it it is uh, capacity in the hospitals, of course, but the biggest barrier in my experience over the pandemic is the rate of community transmission of the virus. That was what was um, uh, holding things back. That that was what was causing people to not be able to attend, to not get access to beds as an inpatient for an intensive five day chemotherapy regimen or whatever it may be. Um, so, so to me, that's that's the concern I have is. You know, withdrawing all restrictions, if if infection, if community transmission of the virus gets to a stage where it starts to impact care, and it has, it actually did over the last month. Um, that's what the data, like, like that's why I I've been so outspoken about the data, about how the data doesn't represent the real world. Because you look now and you say hospitalizations are 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 trending in the right direction, and people in in ICUs with COVID are trending in the right direction, but there's an awful lot of healthcare staff not in the hospitals because they're out with infection or because they're close contacts or because they 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 they, they are symptomatic and that's that's a big big challenge to providing care but we have to say that a lot of the restrictions that were there dj didn't make sense no they didn't work closing pubs at eight o'clock was just an arbitrary thing did it make any difference at all it's very hard to say that it made any difference the passports ceased to work they they might have worked for a little while but they very quickly stopped working. So 
you know, in this, and we were told at the very start, when things don't work, drop them and move on very quickly. But the government invested a lot of time and effort announcing all of these things, built these things up into big, big things. And then it's very hard to drop them when it doesn't work. It's very hard to walk away and say, that doesn't work. But there was an awful lot of those within the restrictions that have been moved at the moment. You know, more sensible restrictions, more sensible guidance, like N95 masks, like, um, you know, proper ventilation. They're the things that really always needed to be done, but still aren't done, DJ. Yeah, but Martin, the problem is bad data and bad methodology for collecting data results in bad policy. You you, you reference eight o'clock closing time for pubs. If you think about it just logically, to take all the spreadsheets and graphs and, and take, take all the, the, the academia away from it. If you close pubs at eight o'clock, what you're doing is the people who will go to a pub are all going in a condensed period of time and all leaving at the same time. And, you know, there, there, there was a, 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 I would say like there, there was an over-reliance on data that was that was generated by poor method, methodological means. So it didn't make much sense. So we haven't learned from that. And that's why my biggest fear when I look at all the quotes from uh, the Taoiseach, the Tarnishta and the Minister for Health over the last few days, the biggest fear I have going forward is what Varadkar said when he said, we'll be prepared and we'll be ready if there is a, a, a spike, if there is a new variant. They have done nothing to instill confidence in me that they will be ready. I don't see how they can be ready because if the pandemic ended today, our healthcare system is still in crisis. If the pandemic ended today, we have no idea what the long-term ramifications for long COVID will be. It's the big elephant in the room. We, ha- we absolutely have no idea what the, the long-term impact of chronic inflammation that is associated with long COVID is going to be, and it's affecting people differently. And when you combine, and this is this is if 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 COVID ceased to be today, if you combine combine long COVID with a complete uh, lack of ambition to implement any sort of healthcare reform and a broken healthcare system, and then you have a Department of Public Expenditure and Reform that has absolutely no interest in providing better working conditions for all the healthcare workers in the system, whether they're um, uh, migrant workers in the healthcare system, whether they're nurses, whether they're non-consultant hospital doctors, the consultant contract, the primary care uh, teams, your GPs, uh, lack of primary care physio services, etc. All that stuff that will keep, keep people out of hospitals, we don't have it. And then you have something where the virus is still here and we still don't have mandatory sick pay. Um, so, uh, so many interventions. Can, can I can I come in? Just, 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 just exactly what you said. There was a, a sentence from the Tarnishta and he said, you know, about variants of concern, reacting to this. And it was a public health specialist who's been on the podcast, Marie, Marie Casey, um, saying this is the most important sentence. And I'd love to see that, that backed up. Now, she spoke about the fact that they're trying to put in a new public health system, you know, a response team. They want they're they're recruiting people at the moment. Um, it's no secret that Niall Conroy, who he- headed up in 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 Queensland, is coming home. Um, people are coming coming back to do these jobs. So, yes, we're not ready. We're not ready. And to say that we're going to be ready, um, you don't you don't just drop a new thing out. But I, 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 Emma, I'm gonna I'm gonna be real cheeky and, and bring you in on this as well because. As all the radio during the week was, um, things are going back to normal uh, in the north tomorrow. You know, nightclubs will open, da 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 da. All this from Wednesday, that starts coming back. And in a rush, we went from, God, they're really rushing through it. And then we went, by the way, tomorrow at 6 a.m., everything goes away as if we, <laughs> as if we just couldn't be outdone. And um, what was the, like, you were watching it on both sides. It must have been a bit surreal to see it, it all just dissolve away and everybody just be expected that it's, by the way, now we're, it's over. Uh, was the one of the one of the hashtags I think was it's over whether you believe it or not and and I don't but I just thought it was an unusual thing. Yeah, I suppose uh, the announcement that the you know the majority of restrictions were going to be dropped at six a.m. tomorrow when that came out on Friday was pretty quick. Um, and I have to say, uh, from a personal perspective, that um, considering the last two years and considering the Omicron peak and the amount of community transmission that persists, the cases that we're seeing, the amount of people having to isolate, it seems like a lot really quickly in terms of like, all right, lads, it's all over and we can all just go back to living a normal life. And that was, I think, a, a very strong message that came out from Shock's statement. Um, and I do have concerns about it as well. I suppose in the North, we have had 
uh, more struggles in terms of adherence to mask wearing. Uh, mask wearing continues here, but you know, with those announcements, uh, people are just going to stop stop doing it. It's going yeah. to be much more difficult for those of us who have immunocompromised family members or, or ourselves are immunocompromised. Um, and it makes it a little bit more challenging to see yourself in those spaces. I mean, my husband's immunocompromised, so we had been very cautious over the last two years. Um, and the prospect now of me having to travel by public transport on a bus with a load of people not wearing masks, no ventilation to get down to Dublin for work uh, is not very appealing to me. Uh, I'm very... I suppose, suspicious uh, of the notion that it's over. And I think quite a lot of, and I understand that they've lifted restrictions. I do, you know, if the numbers are on the wane and um, there is a chance at some summer, but I think Varadkar was also cautious to say that, you know, they haven't really looked into the winter yet. Um, I, I think there is a sense that we should have the summer. And if the numbers lower enough for people to do that, not opposed to that, but the idea that it's over, I think people are going out and enjoying themselves because it's like, enjoy it while it lasts. I don't think there are many people out there going, it's all over, let's party. I think they're going, let's get out there and enjoy it before the next lockdown comes along. I'm going to move us along. Tony, I wanted to ask you, uh, lobbying. And I wanted to ask you about uh, lobbying. Look, no, can we go real quick through this? Because just something came up today that the story broke that former government and um, special advisor to the Minister for Finance and former, he was also the special advisor to John Bruton, um, uh, has had a, an exemption granted by SIPO, um, whether you believe in SIPO or not and what their teeth are, so that he can register as a lobbyist, and he has. I've seen him on the lobbying register. Um, as long as he doesn't lobby former colleagues in the Department of Finance. It just reminds me and um, of if, if people are familiar with the ongoing investigation into Tonis leaking the contract whereby uh, a woman who used to lobby for the other union, the healthcare union that, that, that the, the, the details were leaked to was added to SIPO as well. Um, so there's 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 a lot there's a lot going on, Martin. That that kind of makes uh, it. A look, I you know I dealt with Sipo in recent times, and here's my view on Sipo: not worth not worth a damn. No, totally they, not worth they, a damn. They, they give cover to to a lot of things, but I just think it's interesting that people need to look. I I check the lobbying register a lot. Unfortunately, it's where it's where I I like to go and know, see yeah. who who's going in and out of government buildings and who's you know and who has way and. I mean, it, it is it is an issue, but I do think that it's something that we need to keep an eye on, um, particularly with like. Hey, gotta, look, Tony, it's not right that somebody can walk out of a lobbying job and and are uh, you know, working for a minister and walk back in very shortly afterwards as a lobbyist. And I know he's not allowed to talk to his colleagues in the former uh, finance ministry, but that's a load of nonsense. I mean, there's this doll bar, this can't. Listen, take, we saw we, we saw recently whereby one former Finnegale TD um, was registered for lobbying um four or five of his former colleagues and some of them didn't um yeah well yeah. let's move on a little because social media is getting an awful blame you know it's social media is to blame for everything absolutely everything and again tony there was more news about social media getting blamed in the papers this week for releasing details about the man who was arrested who wasn't actually um, guilty of the crime that that uh, and the the absolute nonsense that went on and it did happen online but it didn't start there um i don't know if anybody else wants to comment on this but i i did look first of all a young, a young woman was, was brutally murdered and it's a, it's an absolute tragedy and a shocking event i do think it's a distraction to say that the problem was something a picture shared on whatsapp and i saw that in the sunday times today and i've seen the press ombudsman i don't know if anybody saw tweeted that that social media caused it and then had to delete the tweet afterwards um which is quite concerning now i will say uh that i have a very good insight into the actual individual who who was wrongly accused um and some of the ways he's been treated are, is a bigger story than what went down in a few tweets on WhatsApp, Martin. And I think yeah. there is an element of we need to address that before we we talk about the problems with with things. I mean, Emma, you're sitting there, and as as and we're the whole everybody is uh, everybody is shocked at what's happening. But I I think I think it's it's Spider Man pointing at Spider Man rather than actually dealing with the issue here. A woman has died. It's male. It's male 
um, violence towards a woman again. And, you know, I, I find those distractions must be very, very frustrating because I know they have been for me. I've had an awful, I've been in now the Garda station all week because of some gobshite last week deciding to, to hijack an online vigil. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that there's a number of uh, faults that led to what really happened here. One is um, the fact that this man's nationality was released um, when he was a suspect, you know, innocent to proven guilty. And I think that um, the releasing of his nationality in a way is is part of uh, what Irish society can be guilty of sometimes in outsourcing uh unpleasant things you know like it's not uh a problem in irish society male violence against women it's not an irish problem uh this was uh, you know something done by an outsider um and therefore it's not uh, not a problem in ireland and i think it was very quick um in terms of the commentary around it to to latch on to the fact that the person in question uh, wasn't um, an irish national and that points to a much deeper systemic issue within uh, institutions in, in in Ireland. Um, but I can't, I mean, the idea that it was all social media is ridiculous because at the end of the day, um, you know, they were people on social media were given pointers on how to figure out who that person was. So there's a there's a load of errors that were made in the process that should be reviewed. And it's easy to blame social media when in reality it, it has to be a much broader examination of what happened in this. And I think I read an interview with that individual and uh, seeing what he went through and his own family went through in that process was pretty horrific. And I mean, the reality is their lives have been completely changed and impacted as well by what happened. His his sister didn't get out, wasn't released from the Docus in Mount Joy until Tuesday. Oh, wow. I mean, he was out. He was out before his sister was. That's incredible. And it's worth remembering, too, that the digital commissioner came online this 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 week in ireland so it'll be interesting to see what if any uh powers actions anything the digital commissioner can do in ireland I, 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 you say it like that, Martin. I say it as a big concern. Um, there's a lot of talk about inflation, all this, all this going on. But, but I would say go back and check out the podcast we did with John Schwartz during the week on that. Um, DJ, can I ask one thing? And on a personal note, how's the foot? Good, yeah. Thanks. Uh, I'm actually going back to work tomorrow. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's great news. I, I, people might know I crushed my foot in August in in, in an accident, and um, I had four surgeries and. Uh, uh, three months where I couldn't leave the house or the hospital, depending on where I was. So uh, getting back to back to UHW tomorrow to the grind. Uh, I have um, I have my ear to the ground, as you know. My good friend Owen, who, who does the podcast with me, you mentioned earlier, is is also a pharmacist in UHW. My wife's a nurse there, so um, I have I have a good idea of, of what has been going on. But I uh, can't wait to get back to work tomorrow. Get back to the research and treating people and and doing all the the good stuff that I uh, I really like doing. But um, yeah, it's just doing really good. It's it's as good as it's good as it's good as it's good as new, really. <laughs> for for our listeners' benefit, he has now effectively a T one thousand foot. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're joking. But oh my god, um, Emma, have you anything coming out? Uh, anything anything we should be looking out for? Uh, nothing really coming out. I took quite a bit of a break uh, in terms of from my uh, writing work over the holidays and I'm easing into 2022 and it was delightful actually really to, for the first time in a long time, really take a break and switch off. But uh, with all the drama around the election campaign, I'm sure there will be something coming out for me very soon. Martin, you have something coming and, and you might want to give listeners a quick brief insight into into uh, details around the PSE. Don't go too far because we have to speak to other people about it. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, I've been chasing the PSC travel pass for a while. And uh, if you go back and read some of the stuff that I've put up on the Tortoise Shack website, and it's there, go back and read it, all true. And we'll be talking about it uh, very shortly. There's been some good movement on it. So we'll be talking about it during the week as well. But it's big. It's huge. Yeah, yeah it is Lovely. pretty big. Yeah. Um, they're, they're just one one thing. I, does anybody realize, guys, and I put a sign of you, do you realize that we've all sort of um, sleepwalked through Joe Biden's one year anniversary and we haven't uh, we haven't marked the occasion? Joe no, who? No, no, no one seems to care about the US anymore. It's all, it's almost nice not to worry about them rather than when we had the other fella in a way. I don't know. Um, I, I thought it was interesting anymore, you know, like no. just not that exciting anymore to be really following what's happening. 
Yeah. Yeah. Somebody may not get shot on Fifth Avenue by the president. <laughs> it's just not as interesting. I do say, though, and I will say, if you look at the world in the round, funny enough, in the round, the English speaking countries are the ones that have lifted um, all the restrictions fastest. The English, England, Ireland, or sorry, Ireland, England, and the US. We all seem to be doing our own thing compared to other people. What? There's 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 some there's a, another elephant in the room in terms of that Martin as well. Like there's two weeks ago today that it emerged that Stephen Donnelly had um, signaled his intent to talk to the HPRA about accelerating the approval of um, Paxlovid, the Pfizer antiviral against COVID. So the US, Ireland, and the UK are going to have an awful lot of supply of antivirals that can keep people out of hospital, and we have had a lot of supply of boosters. Huge portions of the world aren't that lucky. And it come like we had a big chat about trips waiver already, and we're not going to see global equity of of um, supply and, and and availability for Paxlovid or any of the other antivirals against them um, against COVID as well. So so it, it, I think it's a big gamble that they've taken, knowing that these drugs got EM, EMEA approval in December, and they're just basically waiting for the national regulators to approve them now. So. Yeah. We're in a position of privilege and we're not sharing that privilege nearly enough. Been saying it all week, DJ. We are in the West, in the wealthy West, are using vaccines as a life raft rather than as a solution to COVID. And we're leaving everybody else in the water and the rich and wealthy countries just keep jabbing themselves because we're in the life rafts. We're fine. Thanks very much. But the rest of the world has been left to drown. Absolutely left to drown. I think we'll leave it there, folks. Um, I'm just interested. Uh, just, oh, oh, Oshin is in the audience. I know you've asked about um, a rep- report on the policing. We're looking for the correct um, the correct guest, and Vicky will have something hopefully later on in the week. Um, Aoife Grace Moore, I think, joins us tomorrow to talk again about um, events in, nor- in the North, Emma. So we'll be covering that all this week coming. Um, and uh, the, I, one thing I will say is, it's it's interesting that the, the the champagne story hasn't gone away, Martin, and 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 it still it still rumbles on despite the best interests. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Uh, do check out the the link for the events on Bloody Sunday. I think. I think it's really, it's really. I mean, I think Tony spoke to him, spoke for it himself. Uh, if you didn't hear the emotion in his voice, you weren't listening properly. Uh, th- thanks again, folks, and we will be back again tomorrow. Mind yourselves. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.